and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masech Yivamot, daf Ayan, page 70. So we're going to wrap up a, you know, our parak, and we're going to start a, a new parak today. Um, uh, but I really, though, we're going to wrap up the seventh, start the eighth. But the parak ends in a very, very, very unusual way. Um, and it starts with, uh, it's talking about the part of the mission that says, Koen right? And it's the case of a woman's grandson um, who eventually becomes a Kohen Gadol. There are times that he can disqualify the grandmother from eating uh, truma. And so then finally, finally, after we've been through all of these permutations of who disqualifies who, and we talked about how sort of there's no emotion to any of this at all, right? It's just, it's legal. It's like you had this relationship and this offspring or you know, you're disqualified. The offspring disqualifies you. The Gemara now states it's very interesting, Brysa. Tanu Rabbanan. So the uh, rabbi taught in a Brysa, right? Thinking about this case about a woman whose grandson, who's a Kohen Gadol, disqualifies her from Truma. Hareni Kaparat Ben Biti Kuza. So the grandmother could say, this is like an inner thought of the grandmother. May I be the atonement for my daughter's son, the lowly vessel, the ma, right, the who, the lowly vessel, vessel who is a, and what this means is the commentary say it, she's talking about uh, uh, someone who's a mamzer, Shema Alcheni Betruma, because he entitles me to eat Truma. Ve'ini Kaparat Ben Biti Keda, and may I not be an atonement for my daughter's son, the important vessel, meaning the Kohen Gadol, Sheposlini Minha Truma, because he disqualifies me from eating truma. So what the Gemara is trying to say, what the, I should say, the, um, the Tanaim are trying to say with this Brisa is, is that these are two statements that could have been said by the same woman. And this is how it would happen. Let's say we have a woman who's a Yisrael, right? She marries a Kohen. She gives birth to a daughter. The daughter has a relationship, let's say, with an idolater, and they have a son. That son is a mamzer. If the son, if, if Sarah's daughter, if this woman's daughter dies, okay, um, it's this mamzer can still entitle her to eat truma because he is the off, he's the offspring of the daughter's marriage to a Kohen. Let's say this woman then marries a Yisrael, right? And then she no longer can eat truma anymore, right? So, and then that marriage to Yisrael, uh, you know, produces a daughter. That daughter marries a Kohen, okay? They give birth to a son who eventually becomes the Kohen Gadol. And then her second daughter actually dies, okay? She is, dis- she is no longer allowed to eat truma by this Kohen Gadol because she, that connection, the daughter who sort of entitled her to eat truma is no longer there. And so it's like this weird situation where the grandson who's a mom's heir actually can get her to eat truma while the grandson who's the Kohen Gadol disqualifies her from doing it. So I just thought this was a brilliant way for the parrot to end because it finally talks about the emotion, right? Like there must have been very complicated family dynamics, right? Because a lot of times you're losing your status about truma based on somebody else's actions. Like it's not about anything that you did. It's something that someone else did and it impacts you. And so I think this like for all of the, you know, legalese that we read at the last few Dapim, finally we get this brisa that sort of has this quandary of the grandmother who, where she should be so proud of her Kohen Gadol grandchild. Actually, she's not so happy because she ends up losing out on Truma. 
you know, and then a grandson who maybe was not from, you know, a allowed union, actually, she still could get Truma from. So I just thought this was a fascinating Brysa to end the parak because I think it's finally, in a way, Chazal admitting these are these are emotional situations and are complicated, and it's not just legal. Um, Perik, Shvi. Yes. Um. Okay, and we have a new Mishnah, and it's you know gonna bring us right back into the thick of exactly you know who let's let's mess with the Kahuna a little bit more. If you have a Kohen who did not have a Brit Milah, meaning the Kohen is uncircumcised, and presumably that's because at the time that he was a baby, and maybe forever since, right, the Brit Milah was going to be too dangerous, his hemophiliac or some such such condition, right? Any other ritually impure, all other ritually impure people who have because of that impurity, now these are two different um, disqualifications, right? One is if you're ritually impure, which often enough is going to pass pretty quickly, right? You wait out X amount of time and you go to the mikvah and you can... But the uncircumcised Kohen, um, unless he's a child, you know, the odds are very good that this is the, his status for life. But their wives and their slaves or may indeed partake of truma, meaning the fact that, and I'm going to keep using the uncircumcised Kohen because it's a, a starker example, right? He can't be circumcised because he can't be circumcised. He can't partake of truma, but he is still a Kohen and therefore his wife and his would indeed be eligible to eat from truma. Now these are, two different kinds of injuries to a man. The first Ptuadaka is a man who has crushed testicles or other specific wounds uh, to his genitals. Uchrot Shafcha is somebody whose penis has been severed. So these are pretty dramatic injuries. Pain of Avdehen, Yochlu. So such a person is injured as an adult, meaning the circumcision took place prior in life, right? And at this point, it doesn't mean adult, it could happen in childhood. But the, my point is, after the time of circumcision, so this is a Kohen who indeed was circumcised, and then is later injured in his genitalia. So these, any of these injuries, they do eat from truma, such a person would eat from truma. But the wives, the wife of such a person, um, would not eat from truma because now this is it's more complicated. Those who have this injury, um, I would say prior to marriage, are then prohibited to marry a woman who is born Jewish um, because of this injury. Um, which again, you know, it seems to be it's a concern um, because, well, I don't know. I, I I actually I can theorize here. I don't have. Uh, a fine explanation why this is. Um, Yudina, might you? Nope, don't have a good explanation. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, I assume it has to do with progeny or something, but I'm not entirely sure because I, I don't know. But if this Kohen did not sleep with his wife, meaning he's married prior to the injury, and and married to a Jew, right? Before the injury, 
Then he has this injury, and then they no longer have sexual relations. Uh, she can continue to partake of truma uh, because she had married a Kohen under normal circumstances, and she was entitled to partake of truma then. So it does seem to be a specific, I don't know, psul, a specific disqualification because of this injury and the possibility of them sleeping together. I, I do, as I say, I don't have a nice tie it up in a neat bow kind of rationale. At least not yet. Maybe we'll find it as we go through. Who is considered a person, a man who has crushed testicles? It means this kind of wound could be one, both, meaning the the Mishnah here is generous, let's say, in where it's going to include a person in this definition. And again, this idea of a penis that's been severed seems to be anybody whose penis has been severed. Like it's, again, it's graphic, but it's also not, it doesn't leave a lot of room for um, interpretation. But if the the um, the atara, the corona of the penis is is still there, even just a tiny bit. Then that is not considered uh, Um And indeed, somebody is one of these po- populations that's prohibited by Torah law to marry a Jewish woman. But again, if a tiny bit remains, then he's okay. Again, this is like. We've talked about this before. We're talking about the extreme case. I don't think this is pushing the envelope in terms of, you know, concocting a case that could never have happened. I'm sure this happened on occasion, but it's not the nor it's not the the dominant, you know, who eats from Truma kind of setup. Yeah, I again I agree with you. I don't think it was a common one, a disturbing one to read, but certainly not uh certainly not common. I don't have a good answer for why this is a particular disqualification, and I certainly am sensitive to uh, why this may bother some people. And I think it's also interesting that it's not, she can stay in that marriage, um, but it's an issue of having a sexual relationship after that injury, which is also interesting. Like, we, we haven't seen a category like that before. Like, it's not an issue of the marriage itself. It's an issue like you could stay married. It seems to be the implication of the mission of there. I don't know if the Gemara will say something different later on. Um, I want to move on to one other small little piece here, which is the Gemara then basically begins with a discussion of trying to figure out what the biblical source is for this. And it makes a comparison. It makes a Gezer Shava between uh, uh, Pesach uh, and because it has the same words of Toshav Sahir, And we know that somebody who's uncircumcised can't participate in the Korban Pesach. Um, interesting, uh, you know, and then uh, and then comparing it to uh, th- these uh, this set of psukim uh, talking about um, uh, t- talking about um, uh, well, sorry, I, I did this in reverse order actually, right? That we uh, we have right with Pesach and Sev Toshav Sahir, and then later on when we're talking about Kohanim and Truma, it also has the phrase Toshav Sahir. So they use this as a Gezer Shava, and they quote a whole long Brisa to explain all this. The Gemara then wants to sort of really discuss Rabbi Eliezer's, Rabbi Eliezer's opinion um, that makes this, uh, you know, statement about Toshav Sahir, And it says, one of the comments it makes about it is, is that this Gezer Shava is Mufna, that it is a, it's a free Gezer Shava. So I know we've talked about Gezer Shava before, right? It's the idea that you have a word that appears or a phrase that appears in one Pasuk, and then it and then it appears somewhere else. 
Um, and then you basically compare the two uh, to basically see, you know, what's true in one case in one place where the word or the phrase appears has to be true in the other. And that's a very known way uh, of deriving halakha. But here's the first time we've talked about it being mufnet, that it's actually free. So there are sort of two, three different types of gezer shava, right? One is that it's sort of free on both sides, which basically means that there's similar words that make up the gezer shava that seem to be unnecessary or uh, in both in both contexts in which they appear, um, and that's considered to be free. Then there's words mifuna on one side, which means um, one in one case the word seems to be super, superfluous, but not in the other. And then it's where it's not mifuna at all; it's not free at all. Whereas it seems like you, they're both needed uh, to learn other halachot um, out of it. So here we have a case where it seems to be mifuna; it's free on both sides. And this is considered to be sort of like a, a an absolute teaching, right? And that even though maybe you can find, you know, some differences um, between the side that we get the teaching from and the side, you know, that sort of, uh, how would you say that, Anne? Like you have the side that you, you learn the principle from and then the side that sort of like uh, derives that, you know, it's teaching from that from that principle. I hope that makes sense what I just said. Right. So I don't, I, by analogy, is when we talk about analogies, we've got the analogy and we've got the analog, right? Or the mashal and the nimshal. Right? Oh, we, thank we you. Have, yeah. Meaning it's not the same thing, but it's the same idea of having like, this is the, this is the thing that we're comparing and this is the thing that we're comparing to, so to speak. Right. Okay, exactly. So that's right. So in other words, if you have a teaching like that, it's considered to be, it's like not refutable, right? It's actually considered to be like a Gezer Sheva that sort of the Torah put in for the purpose of teaching this. Um, and a Gezer Sheva that's only free on one side, that's only Mifuna on one side, according to the rabbis, this is a Gemara that we'll see in Nida, it's only valid if it can't be, uh, you know, disproved. But if it can be showed that one side, you know, the teachers is sort of like stronger or superior or something like that, then that Gezer Shava can sort of be thrown out. Um, so, you know, just I just wanted to mention, you know, some of these things. Rabbi Shmal, however, who we know, this was like his big thing. Um, he holds that a Gezer Shava that's free on, on one side is also actually considered to be absolute, and he doesn't hold by the same principle um, that the rabbis do. So I just thought it was, I just wanted to mention it because, yes, we've seen Gezer Shava many times, but I don't recall that we've seen the concept of Mifuneh in uh, in Gezer Shava. And, you know, I think it's important because these weren't just like things they did, you know, sort of ad hoc. They actually had real internal principles to them um, and an understanding of how to actually use, how to actually use them to derive halakha. I would just have one thing about the Gezer Shava, which is that, you know, and this I know we have talked about in the past, traditionally can only be used if there's a Masora for it, right? We can't just walk around making our own Gezer Shavas all the time. So this question of how it's used, when it's employed, right? So then the question is, is this a rationale that's derived after the fact, meaning all those Gezer Shavas are in place? Or is this a matter of Machloket, you know, on the very principle of to what degree did Chazal have the right to derive or or glean their own Gezer Shavas, which I, you know, Again, the answer is, you know, the, at the end of the day, you can't make one on your own. But along the way, I'm not so sure that people didn't think that maybe they could. 
before it was decided that they couldn't. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rebonique Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrant website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Town with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.